Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown with me, your host Simon. Why well, I'm here, one of my writers, in this case Danny's written me a script, Pop Goes the Beetle. Did Paul McCartney really die in 1966? Isn't Paul McCartney still alive? He definitely is, right? There's two dead Beatles and there's two alive ones. John Lennon's dead, the other one's dead, and then Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney are still alive. Who's the other one? Is it George Harrison? Is he dead? He's dead. He died a while back. But no, Paul McCartney's still alive. Thank you for watching. Just kidding, we've got 31 pages to get through as we explore how some people think that Paul McCartney was died and then didn't the beat it wasn't there like, oh they sent us a secret message on an album cover. And it's like, no, they don't. Let's just carry on. <laughs> On Saturday the 25th of May 2022, an 80-year-old man managed to make his way onto the main pyramid stage of the Glastonbury Festival to face approximately 100,000 people patiently waiting for the headline act to start making their entrance. It sounds like the sort of incident that usually ends with a stage intruder getting dragged away by security. Yes, it does. Also, I always wonder, how do you get there in the first place? Don't they have like people backstage being like, yo, you're supposed to be here? Because there's very fame. Like, if you're headlining Glastonbury, you're a fairly large musician. Like, that's a. I've heard of it. I've never been to a music festival. I've no desire to go to a music festival. But I know that if you're headlining Glastonbury, you're probably quite famous. And people shouldn't just be allowed to randomly get to where you're supposed to be. But it wasn't going to pan out like that today. The man in question was Paul McCartney. And he was the headlining act. Oh, I see. I see. Danny's starting with a joke. Very clever, Danny. Held almost every year since 1970 on Worthy Farm in Pilton, Somerset, the Glastonbury Festival is a contradictory beast today. The most famous and iconic annual festival in British culture still tries to evoke the hippie spirit of a counterculture free-for-all gathering while simultaneously charging about £400 for a ticket and about £20 for a vegetarian hot dog. It's like, yes, yes, welcome to the place where it's all peace and love and £400. Thank you very much. In 2022, the legendary Paul McCartney was running around 3,000 acts performing over five glorious summer days. The former Beatle was rubbing shoulders on the pyramid stage with the likes of Billie Eilish, Kendrick Lamar, and Diana Ross, while many of the other stages scattered around the farm played host to lesser-known names, including the Funkingham Palace Footman, Lakido, Lord of the Lobsters, and Beans on Toast. Never heard of any of those bands. I guess that's the point, right? I mean, look, he's still playing Glastonbury. You can say you played Glastonbury. That's pretty cool. It's like people who say, oh yeah, no, I was in Forbes. I was in Forbes when really you just paid to have them write an article about you. Didn't you? Didn't you? But it was Paul McCartney who delivered the most memorable performance of Glastonbury 2022 by far. It's fair to say that his voice had gone a bit and he was struggling to hit the high notes. But give the man a break, the 80-year-old rattled through a blistering three-hour set, which included contributions from the like of Bruce Springsteen and Dave Grohl. Holy shit. Uh, who is it? Um, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. I don't know how he does it. But it's all those years of clean living or something, because he still sounds amazing. <laughs> Thanks to a bit of clever technical jiggery-pokery provided by director Peter Jackson, he was even given an opportunity to perform a virtual duet with his former bandmate, the late John Lennon. I'll be impressed with myself at 80 years old if I can still reach for the TV remote and open a bag of crisps without assistance. <laughs> there was just one niggling doubt, though. Was this really the same Paul McCartney who founded the Beatles in 1960, arguably the greatest band of all time, who went on to change the world of music forever over the course of the following decade? Rumour has it that the original Paul McCartney came to an unfortunately sticky end in 1966, and his character has been played by a doppelganger ever since. 
and this wasn't on the same wavelength as some trivial short-lived internet gossip the paul is dead legend is now recognized as one of the biggest and most enduring conspiracy theories of all time which sparked major press headlines and tv news coverage in the united states the clues were all there to be found if you looked hard enough and it didn't help matters that mccartney himself appeared to have vanished off the face of the earth at the time but could there possibly be any substance at all to such a seemingly outlandish theory isn't there a similar theory about avril lavigne that she got replaced by like a bodyguard or a backup dancer or something because she now looks different and it's like well that's what happens when people get older they look different if someone looked at me 10 years ago at the start of my youtube career and was like wait <laughs> when did simon get replaced because we get older i also lost my hair grew a beard had to start wearing glasses got my teeth fixed i look different now <laughs> How did the rumor ever get off the ground and gather momentum so quickly? Were the Beatles themselves involved in fanning the flames? I, if I was the Beatles, I'd be kind of tempted. Like, if I was, like, the Beatles, let's say I'm John Lennon or whatever. I oh, know. Let me be uh, Ringo Starr, because he didn't get shot. I'll be like, there's this rumor going out around that Paul McCartney has been, he died and he's been replaced. And I'll be like, that's an interesting theory, isn't it? It'd be interesting if there was some truth to that, wouldn't it? Wink, wink, nod, nod. And then people would go insane. And I'd be like, no, I was just fucking with them. Like Robert Patterson, the great, one of the greatest legends of all time. Have I, I've told this story before and I'll tell it again because it's absolutely one of my favorite things that has that's ever happened, ever. Like, you know, think about moon landing and stuff. No, forget that. It's the time Robert Patterson was being interviewed on a morning show in America and they were asking him some question about a movie he was doing like water with clowns or something no water with elephants water for elephants it doesn't matter it's a movie that he was in and they asked him some benign question i don't even remember what it was but he just starts telling this story about how when he was a kid he he doesn't or he doesn't like clowns anymore because when he was a kid he went to the circus and he saw a clown car come out and the clown car caught on fire and the clown inside it died and he tells this story like so serious and the people are like oh my god robert that's terrible he's like yeah it was it was and then weeks later he's being interviewed again he's like no no i just made that up <laughs> just for no reason he just makes up this story and it's just like Mwah! because i don't know you're famous you've been on like you've been on like 700 morning shows and you're just bored off your ass and you're like yeah fuck it i'm just gonna make something up because it'll be funny. I, if I was in this Paul is dead situation, I'd be like, yeah, it'd be funny if that was real, wouldn't it? It's definitely not real, isn't it? Hey. Eventually, I'd stop getting invited to do interviews because I'd just be making shit up all the time. Possibly be that the whole thing was accidentally ignited by an entirely different but entirely genuine Beatles conspiracy to cover up a secret truth. Well, let's see if we can work it out. Do you want to know a secret? The way the story usually gets reported is that it all began with a telephone call to a DJ from Detroit during a live broadcast on the underground radio station WKNR-FM in 1969. That's not true. There's a real origins of the theory actually stretch back a little further than that. But the radio broadcast was certainly a significant event in the timeline of the growth of the Paul is Dead theory, and as most people seem to think that this was the source of the whole thing, it makes a good jumping in point for now before we hit the rewind button much later in the video. DJ Russ Gibb was hosting a radio broadcast on the 12th of October 1969 when he took a mysterious call from a young guy who gave his name as Tom Zarsky. Tom asked DJ Russ if it heard the rumors that were supposedly circulating 
around the United States, the Paul McCartney had died a few years earlier and had been replaced with a lookalike. DJ Russ was initially dismissive of such a preposterous notion, but Tom insisted that the remaining Beatles had planted several clues within the lyrics of the tracks on their most recent albums. A particular note during the initial broadcast was a clue hidden on the track from the Beatles' eponymous album released the previous year, now widely known as the White Album. Clocking in at over eight minutes, Revolution 9 is not only the longest track to have ever been released by the Beatles, it's also the weirdest, and that is certainly saying something when you take into account all the stuff about living under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. Yeah, the Beatles music is like slightly batty, isn't it? Like, what are you talking about? We all live in a yellow submarine. What the fuck are you? What do you mean? What yellow submarine? Have you been taking acid again, John? Tucked away near the end of the electric, eclectic, sprawling double album, Revolution 9 is the track that most sensible listeners tend to skip. Said to be inspired by the works of Yoko Ono. Oh my god. <laughs> Yoko Ono. I hate Yoko Ono. But hate's a strong word. I just don't think she has any talent. Maybe that tells you enough. It's an avant-garde sounding collage of loops of speech and distortion and sound effects pushed drearily along by the voice of the sound engineer who intones the words Number nine. Number nine over and over for no discernible reason. The opinions of the critics back in the day ranged from an anti-masterpiece to noisy, boring, and meaningless to a pretentious piece of old codswallop and a piece of idiot immaturity. I noticed that Paul McCartney elected not bother playing it during his Glastonbury 2022 set. That'd be amazing. He's like, guys, I need to take a break. Yo, sound man, it's your time to shine. The sound man's like, what? <laughs> Get on stage, sound engineer. Revolution 9. I don't know the words. Easy. <laughs> Number nine. But hidden amongst this self-indulgent eight-minute racket, caller Tom Zarsky had noticed something odd. He urged DJ Russ to play the first few minutes of the track backwards, and the DJ eventually obliged after a little persuasion. Russ and his army of loyal listeners were all pretty taken aback by the results. The words, number nine, number nine, now sounded uncannily like the words, turn me on, dead man, turn me on, dead man. DJ Russ Gibb recalls, I should have brushed the kid off. When I spun it backwards, I freaked, and the whole thing just exploded. The phones were ringing off the hook. People were calling with their own clues. It was non-stop. It was really a phenomenon. For a while, it seemed like it really might be true. What the thing about this is, did he feed him this information? Did he say, yo, yo, play it backwards, and you'll hear it says, turn me on dead man? And if yes, then it doesn't mean anything, because you've been fed that, and you're going to hear what you want to hear. There's this amazing website where they like do this they'll take stuff they'll play it backwards you'll hear nothing and they'll tell you now try and listen for this word and you'll hear it but until you're told what word it is you'll never hear it because you hear what you want to hear perhaps this could explain why the track was ever recorded and released in the first place the whole purpose of revolution 9 was to serve as a tip-off it's admittedly quite difficult to come up with any other rational reason for its existence <laughs> well maybe the beatles were just being you know self-indulgent douchebags <laughs> Reminds me of the artist that they based that track on, allegedly. But it was shortly after this broadcast that other radio stations began to jump on the Paulie's dead bandwagon, and suddenly it seemed as if every student in every university campus in the United States was pouring through the extensive back catalogue of the Beatles to try and pick up on other secret signs buried deep, or even not so deep, within the vinyl and packaging. We'll return to some of the highlights of that staggeringly long list of clues in just a moment, but first, let's just take a look at what exactly was supposed to have happened to poor old Paul. Well, poor young Paul, really. He would have only been 24 years old when the tragedy struck. Drive my car. 
Now, the theory goes that the original Paul McCartney met his fate at around 5 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday, the 9th of November, 1966. Paul McCartney had spent the night in what would later become known as the Abbey Road Recording Studio, working on the upcoming Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album with fellow Beatles John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, alongside producer George Martin. Sadly, the session had ended in yet another bust-up for the incredibly argumentative Fab Four, and McCartney ended up storming out of the studio in a huff, hopping into his Aston Martin sports car. One version of the tale makes out that he was entirely alone, but another version suggests that he generously stopped to pick up a stray young hitchhiker by the name of Rita. Whether a grumpy Paul was distracted by the ferocity of the argument with his bandmates, or he was distracted by the amorous attentions of Rita the hitchhiker, who was taking the opportunity to try and cop off with one of the most famous men on the planet, the outcome was the same. He didn't notice that the traffic lights had changed to red. Paul McCartney plowed straight through, and his sports car was hit by another vehicle, causing the Aston Martin to crash straight into a lamppost. It's got to be cool to be 24 years old. You're one of the most famous people in the world just cruising around in an Aston Martin sports car. That's a good life, isn't it? Oh, he's probably like, I just like to be left alone. <laughs> But it sounds fun, doesn't it, when you're not living it? Oh, it's probably fun to live it anyway, isn't it? If Rita the Hitchhiker was indeed present, she was instantly killed by the impact. McCartney, meanwhile, was decapitated. So surprisingly enough, there was not an awful lot that the medics could do when his head and the rest of his body were wheeled into the local hospital in London. Do so they really take you to hospital? It's like, he's been decapitated. Take him straight to the funeral parlor. I like how Daddy also says she was killed instantly. And Paul McCartney was decapitated, so also killed instantly? <laughs> Naturally, this left the shocked surviving members of the Beatles with a bit of a problem to mull over. They were just approaching the peak of their career, and were on the verge of finishing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a piece of work that was destined to become a defining moment in pop culture, and is still widely regarded by people who know what they're talking about as the greatest album ever released. It's a, uh, uh, comes back, everyone always hates me in the comments when I say like, I like the Beatles. I like the Beatles. Do I think they've made the greatest music to ever exist? No, I don't think that. They're good. They're great. They're not the greatest band to have ever existed. It's what Fleetwood Mac is for. But what were they supposed to do now? Split up and abandon the album? Find a new replacement for Paul, preferably one whose head was still very much attached? I know that plenty of bands go through inevitable lineup changes, but it's truly difficult to imagine a version of the Beatles without all four members. Wait, didn't they get rid of someone? Wasn't there some original drummer that Ringo Starr replaced? I feel like there was someone in the Beatles who got replaced, right? I mean, I suppose at a push you could replace Ringo with a nice sloppy Labrador and just about get away with it. And it's it's worth remembering that the original five-piece lineup of the Beatles featured two other members, Stuart Sutcliffe and Pete Best. Pete Best is who I'm thinking of, who weren't destined to hang around long enough to reap the rewards. Oh man, can you imagine? Oh, I don't think this is going anywhere. Don't think this is going anywhere. And it's like, yeah, okay. That's an unfortunate decision. <laughs> like a year later, oh no, oh no. Is that, oh no. <laughs> But even so, by 1966, the idea of the Beatles without Lennon, McCartney, or Harrison seemed as absurd as the idea of fish and chips without a carton of curry sauce. Ugh. I don't think I've ever had vision chips with a carton of curry sauce, Danny. Fixing a hole of this size would be inconceivable. It was apparently John Lennon who first came up with the idea of keeping McCartney's death a secret and replacing him with an imposter to keep up the pretense that he was still alive. It was an idea which Harrison and Ringo, sorry, we can't just call him Star, can we, initially found repulsive and in very poor taste, but they were eventually persuaded to go along with the charade. <laughs> It's like, no, that's a terrible idea. And then he's like, have you considered how much money we are going to make? And they'll be like, I love it. Bring in the replacement. An alternative take on the tale suggests that it was actually the UK security service, MI5, who insisted that the band find a lookalike replacement over fears that Paul McCartney's death could potentially lead to mass hysteria and trigger a wave of suicide among, suicides among young fans. Wait, when did John Lennon die? It, was only, it wasn't that much long after, right? <laughs> 
There was a wave of suicide. No, no, he's just a famous guy who died. That's that. Ripped to the goat. That would have been quite a thoughtful gesture on their part. When the Spice Girls split up in 2001, I could have done with the intervention of MI5 to spare me from the grief. They could easily have rustled up a bunch of lookalikes to carry on as if nothing had happened. Although I reckon I would have spotted a fake Jerry Halliwell. I'm not so sure I'd have spotted a fake Jerry Halliwell because I watched that Drive to Survive program and what's his face? The guy who runs the Red Bull team. Stephen Horner? Stephen Homer? Stephen Horner? Someone Horner? Uh, is married to Jerry Halliwell. I was watching that show being like, oh, I just I just thought they were talking about it's just his wife and then I'm like, oh, that's actually Jerry Halliwell as in the Spice Girl Jerry Halliwell. It took, it took me like a good season to put that together. <laughs> but regardless of who came up with the fiendish plot, a secret funeral service was held for the real Paul McCartney whilst his replacement was eventually found in the form of a young guy who had grown up as an orphan and now found himself facing a pretty extensive identity crisis. Some say he was from Edinburgh, while others say that he hailed from Canada. Either way, he was going to have a hard time in nailing that Liverpudlian accent. His real name was William Shears Campbell, although he liked to perform under the name Billy Shears before assuming the identity of Paul McCartney. And he was apparently found after the record label launched a Paul McCartney lookalike competition, the results of which were never revealed. Exactly how much he resembled McCartney is up for debate. While some versions of the saga suggest that he was already an almost perfect doppelganger, other versions suggest that Billy Shears underwent extensive plastic surgery before he was finally revealed to a completely unsuspecting public. Look, plastic surgery today doesn't really... When I've... I don't know, I've seen those shows where it's like, you know, the weird plastic surgery or whatever, and it's like, I want to look like this person. And they never quite end up looking like that person. It's like they have some exaggerated features of that person. But you can't have plastic surgery to make you look like someone else exactly, can you? I don't think it's how it worked. And that's today. This was the 1960s. Of course, if all of this is true, a bit of a stretch, I know, this changes pretty much everything we thought we knew about Paul McCartney. It would mean that whilst the original Paul McCartney was responsible for helping the band hit the dizzying heights of fame with a clutch of cheerful pop songs, it was actually a completely different person who contributed to the groundbreaking work from the band's later years. A completely different person who went on to form Wings, marry Linda McCartney, and perform a seminal collaboration with the Frog Chorus, and a completely different 80-year-old person who was wowing the audience at Glastonbury Festival 2022 with renditions from a discography stretching back about 50 years, the vast majority of which had nothing whatsoever to do with the original Paul. Wait, is Linda McCartney the woman who talks all that bullshit about, um, I don't know, like the misinformation woman? Linda McCartney. Am I just imagining that? Because I don't want to don't say. She also makes, like, vegetarian stuff, right? Oh, well, it's definitely not Linda McCartney, because apparently she died ages ago. I'm definitely thinking of someone else then. <laughs> Sorry, Linda McCartney's memory. My bad. In a way, the replacement Paul McCartney has far more Paul McCartney about him than the real Paul McCartney. Nowhere, man. If the Beatles oh, were supposed to be keeping this a secret, they weren't doing a very good job of it. When Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was finally released in 1967, they practically announced the arrival of the new member within the opening title track of the album. Check out the lyrics at the close of this opening song, which segues into the next track. The singer's gonna sing along, and he wants you all to sing along. So let me introduce to you the one and only Billy Shears and Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Just to drive the point home, the opening words of the next track were simply a celebratory re repetition of the name Billy Shears. Surely people are just like, surely that's not what the actual words were. However, this is possibly a misunderstanding of the original premise of what is often considered to be the world's first concept album. The Carney had originally envisioned that the Beatles should take on the mantle of an entirely fictional Edwardian-era military band in order to free up their experimental creativity. <laughs> 
Holy shit, McCartney, how much have you smoked? You were hitting the bong hard that morning. The band was, of course, the Lonely Hearts Club band, compared by Sgt. Pepper, with each Beatle taking on the role of an alter ego. It's a concept which has largely fizzled out by the time the album was released. Oh, okay, sorry, I understand. Billy Shears, the only reason that name is a name is because it's in this song, right? There was no actual Billy Shears, was there? We still don't really know which Beatle was supposed to be Sgt. Pepper, or in fact, which Beatle was supposed to be playing which fictional character. Aside from Sgt. Pepper himself, Billy Shears is the only member of the fictional band to get a name check anywhere on the record. But if Billy Shears is any Beatle at all, it would make more sense for him to be Ringo Starr. As the title track segues into the next track with the introduction of Billy Shears, it's Ringo's voice we hear on the lead vocals for With a Little Help from My Friends. Paul McCartney later stated that he just randomly came up with the name Billy Shears because it sounded like a nice atmospheric name which rhymed with all these years and served as an introduction to the next song. <laughs> Never want to accuse the Beatles of like lazy songwriting, but if you've got years and you're like, oh, I need to rhyme it with something and you can't rhyme it with something, you just make up a name. And you're like, yeah, okay, what word? Desk. Uh, I was sitting at a desk and then a man called Mr. Manesque came in and it's like, okay. Well done. But then the lookalike Billy Shears is bound to say something like that, isn't he? Another character connected to the tragedy pops up later on in the album in the form of the track Lovely Rita Meter Maid. Jolly Song appears on the surface to be about Paul falling for the charms of a meter maid. We tend to refer to them as traffic wardens here in the UK after she hands him a parking ticket. It's a romantic concept which I'm sure plays out every day on the busy, heart-shaped streets of Britain. Paul ends up taking Rita out for dinner, but then we hear the curious line, took her home and nearly made it. Hey, 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 hey. Could that be the Beatles actually talking about the hitchhiker Rita, who may or may not have contributed to the fact that Paul didn't quite make it home that night? No, 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 that's not what he's referring to. I don't think that's what he means. Maybe, although it could also be interpreted as Paul not quite managing to make out with Rita when he invited her into her house as her two sisters were sitting on the sofa with them. Yes, yes. I get, maybe it was a more innocent time. But is that what Paul McCartney, one of the most famous people in the world, is thinking about doing? He's like, oh, I'd just really like to give her a little kiss. <laughs> Slightly more eerie clues can be found in Sandra Pepper's epic closing track, Day in the Life, which features what sounds like a car crash and an explosion. It also kicks off with an opening verse about a man, possibly a politician, who meets an unfortunate end in a car accident. As the song delicately puts it, he blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. Another reference to McCartney's accident. John Lennon claimed that the verse was inspired by the death of young Irish socialite Tara Brown, the heir to the Guinness fortune, who tragically died at the age of 21 in a car accident in 1966. I, I understand like cars are still dangerous, but like back in the day. I remember my dad once saying, back in the day, everyone knew someone who died in a car accident. And now it's like, I don't know a single person who died, who's died in a car accident. And I've, I, I definitely know people who know people, but that is far removed from directly knowing someone who's died in a car accident. But back in the day, cars just, they had little lap belts, no airbags. <laughs> Crumple zones were like, why would you want something to crumple? But weirdly, co-writer McCartney can't seem to make up his mind about whether this is true or not. He once claimed that he wasn't thinking at all about Tara Brown when he was working on the song, and that he envisioned the verse to be about a politician who crashed his car after he blew his mind out on drugs. However, as recently as 2021, McCartney gave the contradictory account that he was friends with Tara Brown and that the verse was very much about him. Oh, okay, Tara Brown is a... wait, 
socialite. Tara Brown. Is it a man or a woman? It. Sorry, Tara. Or what's he trying to hide? As Judge Judy might say, you don't need to have a good memory when you tell the truth. She might also say, you're so full of baloney and don't peel my leg and tell me it's raining. Maybe we'll find further clues in the actual packaging of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club bands. The front cover, for example. I must have seen this iconic image featuring a cast of colorful cutout characters thousands of times, and yet I've never spent much time pondering over the fact that it could easily be interpreted as a funeral gathering. You even get the name of the band displayed in a wreath at the bottom, possibly in tribute to either McCartney or the most infamous incarnation of the band. Not only that, but there's also a little wreath of yellow hyacinths on the ground which take the shape of a left-handed bass. Paul McCartney played the bass, and he was the only left-handed member of the Beatles. Oh, wow. What a coincidence. <laughs> it's been argued that the bass wreath may actually be a tribute to the band's original Scottish bassist, Stuart Sutcliffe, who died from a brain hemorrhage at the age of 21. Oh my lord. That's crap. People who die- I don't imagine, like, brain- it's like heart attacks. It's not something I think I have to particularly worry about for at least another 10 years. Brain hemorrhages? I thought that's just something that happened to my, like, grandma. 21! But that doesn't entirely make sense, as Sutcliffe was right-handed. I suppose it could be some sort of in-joke referring to the fact that Sutcliffe left the band and he gifted his right-handed bass to Paul McCartney, who had to play it upside down until he could afford to buy a left-handed one. Maybe this was Stuart Sutcliffe's bass turned upside down to represent the passing of the instrument from Sutcliffe to McCartney. Or maybe we're looking way too deeply into this. Yes, <laughs> as soon as you said that, I'm like, no, 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 it's just, they, it's just some element, like, Someone set it up and no one thought about it that much. If you think some of these cover clues are a bit batty, indeed I do, Danny, well, wait until you hear this one. The words Lonely Hearts appear in big letters on the front of a bass drum, but if you take out a flat mirror and hold it perpendicular to the letters, they now appear to spell out I one I X he die, with a little diamond shape in the middle. <laughs> This is absurd. This is apparently a reference to the date of McCartney's death on November the 9th, so the wording is basically saying 11-9 he die, with the diamond in the middle pointing directly at McCartney. This is absurd. It's so silly. This might have made a little more sense if he'd adopted the British method of dating, which sensibly puts the day before the month, but only a little bit more sense. Elsewhere on the front cover, we can see an Aston Martin toy sports car, which is an accurate recreation of the full-size version of the car, which McCartney blew his mind out in, and a small statue of the Hindu god Shiva the Destroyer who seems to be pointing to the doomed beetle. Guys, you are really stretching things here. Flipping open, the gorgeous gatefold sleeve reveals another image of the Beatles in which McCartney is wearing an arm patch which bears the abbreviation OPD. We all know what OPD stands for. That's right, it's clearly an abbreviation for officially pronounced dead. Although that's not what the imposter Billy Shears would have you believe, he reckons that he picked up the arm patch in Canada and that it's a police badge which stands for Ontario Police Department. <laughs> a likely tale, Billy. You liar. You intruder, Billy. Finally, we turn to the back cover, where we see another image of the band, but for some reason, whilst the surviving members of the Beatles are facing the camera as you might reasonably expect, Paul McCartney has his back turned. It's certainly an odd pose to strike for a group photo, but then the Beatles always had a reputation for embracing the unconventional. Some Conspiracy theorists have suggested, however, that turning your back is a symbolic gesture associated with death in some countries, whilst others have suggested this is a sign of Billy Shears attempting to conceal his real identity. People, you are so deep in a hole if you really believe this. You really need to have your brain fixed because it's just silly. 
You'll also find the lyrics to every song on the back cover, which was a pretty unusual move back in the days when most listeners just hummed along with their own comically inaccurate words. But George Harrison seems to be pointing to one line in particular, the opening line from She's Leaving Home. It says, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins. This is, of course, the day and exact time at which Paul McCartney supposedly crashed his car and lost his head. And it seems the Beatles did have something of a fascination with Tuesdays and Wednesdays. In the later 1967 song, Iron the Walrus, a for the most nonsensical song ever recorded by the band, which, as we'll discover in a while, has its own role to play in the saga. Lennon sings about Stupid Bloody Tuesday, which could be a reference to the previous evening's bust-up in the recording studio that led to McCartney storming out in a huff. And in the later 1968 track, Lady Madonna, we hear the lyric, Wednesday morning, papers didn't come. Could this be alluding to the press blackout that following the secret demise of McCartney? No! No, it doesn't! How is the 20 We're a third of the way through. Is it just going to all be this insane? There better be something other than like, oh yeah, I mean, I looked in a mirror or something and it vaguely looked like it read something, which means this. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, what's... You have... A, I, I feel like you need to apply your creativity elsewhere because it is wasted on this. Or just a general complaint about the sloppy work ethic of the local paper boys and paper girls. Now let's move on to what is probably my favorite collection of Beatles songs, even if it's not really a proper album as such. Magical Mystery Tour was originally released as a double EP in late 1967 and served as a soundtrack to the TV movie of the same name before it was later padded out to album length with a handful of the band's recent singles. But although it might sound a bit cobbled together, it's still an incredibly oddball collection of 60s psychedelia, which includes Lennon's nostalgic reflections on his childhood years in Strawberry Fields Forever. Lennon apparently makes a surprising admission toward the end of this track. It appears as if the words were never intended to make it to the final cut. They were just accidentally picked up by the microphone on Ringo's drum kit, which is where Lennon just happened to be loitering at the time. But if you listen very closely, you could just about hear Lennon saying something which sounds very similar to I buried Paul. Well, that's what some people reckon. It seems a very strange thing to just blurt out when you're standing next to Ringo. Others have suggested that it was actually him saying, I'm very bored, <laughs> which sounds much more likely. <laughs> that's the sort of thing that I'd mutter, like walking away to turn off the camera after like a script that I found particularly interesting. It was like, oh my god, so bored. <laughs> Just muttering to myself, and if that was left in, I'd be embarrassed. It wouldn't be entirely out of character for Lennon to make an unplanned lyrical contribution during the recording of a track. Less than three minutes into the track, Hey Jude, you could just about hear Lennon muttering, Fucking hell, after realizing that the volume in his headphones had been set too loud. That's what we were led to believe for over 40 years anyway. In 2021, McCartney claimed that the expletive actually came from his own mouth after he missed a piano chord. But in this case, Lennon was saying, Neither I buried Paul nor I'm very bored. As we finally got to hear much more clearly in a remastered version of the track released in 1996, what he's actually saying is cranberry sauce. What? Why would he randomly say this might why he would randomly say this might remain forever a mystery. Perhaps Ringo is asking him what he wanted putting on his turkey sandwiches during his lunch break. Bearing in mind that we're talking about a man who wrote such lyrics as yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye, crab a locker, fishwife, pornographic priestess, boy, you've been a naughty girl, you let your knickers down. Maybe we shouldn't try to overanalyze anything, everything that came out of Lennon's mouth. Yeah, it's like some music you really enjoy. And then I was like, what's the, it was some Coldplay song. And someone was like, there was a, I either read it or saw a video about it. And then someone like criticizes that lie where he's like, you cut me down a tree and brought it back to me. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's cutting down trees. You know, yeah, it doesn't really make any sense, does it? <laughs> 
It's just music. What further clues are coming out of the packaging of Magical Mystery Tour? Well, the back cover features stills lifted from the accompanying TV movie, which all depict the Beatles dressed up in white suits and red carnations, except McCartney, who gets a white suit but is wearing a black carnation, more commonly associated with a funeral. McCartney later gave a rather mundane explanation for it when he revealed, I was wearing a black flower because they ran out of red ones. Meanwhile, the front cover features the band's name spelled out in giant stars, but if you turn the sleeve upside down and get out that same mirror that you've hopefully kept when you were mucking about with the Sgt. Pepper's cover, the reflection reveals what looks like a telephone number. It was rumored that the telephone number belonged to a local mortuary in London, although others have claimed that they phoned the number and heard a recorded message which simply stated you're getting closer. And let me guess, no one has any proof about this. I would have thought that this would have been relatively easy to prove one way or the other during the height of the Paul is Dead mania. It's also a bit fishy that not everyone can even agree on what the digits the telephone number are supposed to be. But even though this is most likely not true, I prefer the theory that the telephone number belonged to an unwitting industrial correspondent working for the Guardian newspaper who spent the next few months fielding inquiries from concerned America fans over the true fate of Paul McCartney. I once got a recycled number and people would like be it would happen very rarely but someone would phone up and be like hi yeah is this uh jvc security or whatever and i'll be like no and they'll be like well i found this number about jvc security so i was hoping that we could talk to you about some security stuff and i'm like well i'm not jvc security and they're like well why do you have this number listed i'm like i don't know what do you want me to say <laughs> yes sure i'll be happy to provide some security meetings let's meet next week <laughs> It's surprising that people are so entitled and it's like, no, it's a wrong number. And they're like, well, I'm looking at the number right now and it's like, cool. <laughs> okay. Great. We can skip over the Yellow Submarine now. Partly because this soundtrack to the animated movie is surprisingly crap. Oh, is that why it's called Yellow Submarine? There's an animated movie about it. Okay, <laughs> the more you know. The Beatles weren't even remotely involved in the second half of the album, made up of orchestral scores provided by producer George Martin, whilst even their own half is notably lackluster. But there also just aren't that many clues lurking beneath this sea of green. There aren't that many clues in the band's next significant release either, the aforementioned eponymous double album, commonly known as the White Album, the packaging of which was an unusually minimalistic design well, it was largely just white. I wonder where I got the name The White Album. Didn't Weezer have a white album? There's the whole Revolution 9 rubbish, of course, which helped the theory take off in the first place that was broadcast with DJ Russ Gibb. There's also another bizarre lyric in Ringo's song Don't Pass Me By, which observes, I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. Again, like, don't want to, like, criticize the Beatles, because they are the Beatles, one of the greatest bands of all time, but is that some, there's some genius lyrics there. <laughs> if that was a poem that I submitted uh, in, a, in an English class when I was 12, I'd get a C. <laughs> Might this again be a reference to the bust-up in the recording studio and the subsequent accident in which McCartney lost both his hair and his head? No. <laughs> no, it's not. There's also another backwards lyric theory, similar in vain to Revolution 9, based around another random contribution from Lennon. Towards the end of the track, I'm So Tired, a song notable for branding Sir Walter Raleigh a stupid get, or git, I guess, for introducing tobacco to Britain, Lennon can be heard mumbling words which on first lesson may sound completely incomprehensible. Yo, if Sir Walter Raleigh didn't, introduce tobacco someone's gonna because eventually someone's gonna be like holy shit smoking's awesome and it's not even bad 
for you. And then they're like, oh no, it's terribly bad for you. It's actually killing everybody. But they didn't know that at the time. So someone else would just be like, this is sick. The theory goes that if you play the track backwards, as you do, the words suddenly become a lot clearer. Paul is dead. Miss him. Miss him. Again, this is definitely going to be one of those cases where you hear it played. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't hear anything. And then someone's like, oh, do you hear it? Do you hear it? And you're like, oh my God, I hear it. It's just your brain hearing what it wants to hear. A more likely explanation is that Lennon's mumbled words weren't nonsensical at all. He's actually saying, Monsieur, 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 how about another one? And these words weren't meant to be played backwards. I mean, why would you even decide to play a song backwards? To be fair, the Beatles were pioneers of the technique known as backmasking, in which a chunk of sound is deliberately recorded backwards onto a track. In fact, they're widely regarded as the first band to use the technique in a pop song. But this was never designed to be a technique for planting subliminal messages. It was purely to create intriguing new sounds and textures. The fear of subliminal messages on records had reached hysterical proportions by the 1980s as several Christian groups became so convinced that heavy metal bands were hiding backward satanic messages in their songs that they're taken to burning these records in the streets. <laughs> Religion, everybody. Of course, a few musical pranksters did subsequently plant backwards messages in their songs from time to time. My favorite example of which is from the 1996 Weird Al Yankovic track, I Remember Larry, which when spun backwards reveals the words, Wow, you must have an awful lot of free time on your hands. Yeah, there's also in that uh, Tenacious D, one of their albums, at the end, something like, I remember it. And it's, if you play it backwards, it says donkey crap. And you're like, ah, ah. However, the vast majority of allegations of backmasking made against the likes of Led Zeppelin and ACDC were completely unfounded. Yet Judas Priest still found themselves facing a bizarre trial. Holy shit, someone took this to court? In, the in 1990, in which they were accused of being responsible for the deaths of two young fans who committed suicide shortly after listening to a Judas Priest album and then becoming heavily intoxicated. The latter part may have something to do with the outcome. Yes, look. I'm sorry, but it's art. Like, I don't... No one's gonna be like, oh, well, there's this, you know, novel that talks about suicide and someone read it and then afterwards they killed themselves. No. No one's gonna say that. And, like, whether you like it or not, and I'm not a giant Judas Priest fan, it is still art. And that doesn't kill anybody. It was alleged that the band themselves had hidden the backward message, let's be dead, do it, in their cover version of Better By You, Better Than Me. As the band's manager later noted, killing off your audience is not the smartest commercial trick in the book. He said, if we were going to do that, I'd be say saying, buy seven copies, not telling a couple of screwed up kids to kill themselves. Although the case drags... <laughs> I love how savage that is. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, of course, I love money! Although the case dragged on for a month, it was thankfully dismissed after the band were able to demonstrate in court that any supposed messages were just the coincidental result of distinctive guitar sounds and the way that singer bot Rob Halford exhaled between lyrics. They were also able to demonstrate that people will find supposed backwards lyrics in the most innocent tracks if they try hard enough. As guitarist Glenn Tipton put, it's a fact that if you play speech backwards, some of it will seem to make sense. Especially if you front load it. Especially if you're like, yo, 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 it says this. That would have been a great move by the lawyer. And maybe they did this in court. To play like, I don't know, Mary Had a Little Lamb backwards. And be like, or, and not tell them what it is. And be like, do you hear this? From this like, satanic band. And then you play it forward for the jury. 
And it's like, Mary had a little lamb. And it's like, you see, can we go now? Do we have to be here? Let's dismiss this. Let's go. Although I guess it got dismissed by a judge before it got to jury, right? This was in America, right? Where they have juries on civil trials. And I think this is an important point to bear in mind when we're discussing any of the supposed hidden messages in Beatles tracks. Whether we're talking about backwards messages relating to dead men or lyrics which reference meter maids and Wednesday mornings, it's easy to come across something which could be interpreted in a million different ways, but then decide that can only be interpreted in the way that fits what your brain wants to hear exactly. Thank you, Danny. Seriously, though, stop playing records backwards. It's bad for the ears and it's bad for the head. Still, perhaps the Beatles saved their biggest clue of all for last with the release of the Abbey Road album in 1969. Even I've heard this one. Isn't Paul McCartney walking the other way or something, or he's doing something different? There's always been a bit of confusion over as to what should be regarded as the Beatles' finest album. The last regular collection of new material to be released was in the form of Let It Be, which didn't hit the shops until 1970, but have been sitting on a shelf for a little while. I lean towards the idea that Abbey Road from 1969 is the real final album, as even though it was released before Let It Be, it was actually the last collection of songs to be recorded by the band. And it's on Abbey Road that we find the final batch of clues. Now, I'm not going to harp on any further about suggestions in the lyrics, although apparently it's been noted that if you play the track Here Comes the Sun backwards at 78rpm, you can hear George Harrison cheerfully singing Woe is Paul. So not only are you spinning it backwards, you're also adjusting the rotations per minute on the track. Oh, stop it, people. After you finish playing the track backwards at 78 RPM, maybe you can consider smearing the record in Marmite and popping it in the microwave to see if anything interesting pops up. But no, this final batch of pointers can all be found on the cover, in which the four members of the band are famously navigating the pedestrian crossing on Abbey Road in single file. While this may at first glance just appear to be a photograph of four guys crossing the road, it's often been remarked that each member of the band is meant to represent a character in a funeral procession. John Lennon, dressed in all white, is the holy figure. Ringo Starr, clad entirely in black, is meant to be the undertaker. Scruffy old George Harrison in his denim jacket is clearly the gravedigger. And as for Paul McCartney, well, he's unfortunately the corpse. The reasoning behind this is that Paul's eyes are closed, he's out of step with the others, and he's walking barefoot across the pedestrian crossing, a possible reference to how corpses in some countries are buried without their shoes. Are you joking? <laughs> Please stop. I can't believe we're only halfway through. This is entirely ridiculous so far. I might just have been a bit more convinced if they'd dressed Paul McCartney up as a maggot-spewing zombie with various missing limbs and maybe chopped off his head. But oh wait, there is more lurking underneath this cover. The left-handed McCartney is holding a cigarette in his right hand, a sign that the imposter Billy Shears must have had the same looks and the same voice, but he didn't share the same dominant hand. Or he's just holding a cigarette in his left hand. Like... That is not particularly unusual. And then there's the registration plate. The cover depicts a Volkswagen Beetle bearing the registration LMW28IF. The first three letters are said to be an abbreviation of Linda McCartney Widow. Oh, please, this is so silly. Or Linda McCartney Weeps. Oh, this is deeply, deeply stupid. Whilst the final digits are said to represent the age of the real Paul McCartney, if he had still been alive for the Abbey Road shortcut. Oh, IF, because if is like on the... <laughs> Come on. Come on, this is so daft. Cynics point out that the real Paul McCartney would have actually been 27 at the time, but they're forgetting that in some far eastern countries, the time spent in the womb counts towards the age of a person. Ah! And the Beatles had certainly spent time dabbling in Eastern mysticism in recent years. Oh, for God's sake, stop it. All these doubting Thomases don't seem so clever now, do they? Oh no, we seem perfectly clever, because all of this is just insane. And if you believe this, I really think you just there's something wrong with your brain. Well, just about all these final theories can be debunked 
prolonged with reasonably straightforward explanations. Or we could just say, it's a coincidence. Because it is. It's a bit of a stretch to assume that just because, say, Lennon decided to wear white on that day whilst Ringo decided to wear black, this means that the stroll across the pedestrian crossing is meant to represent a funeral procession. It's debatable whether McCartney's eyes are really closed at all, and whilst he may seem out of step with the others, there are several alternative shots in which he isn't. The band just went with the best shot in which all four of them were mid-stride as they felt it looked the most effective. It's not that uncommon for a smoker to use their non-dominant hand to hold a cigarette. I often do this myself without thinking, although, of course, I never light the cigarette or anything, as I've been warned that this can be quite dangerous. <laughs> sure, Daddy, sure. And the registration plate doesn't really make sense, regardless of whether we're counting McCartney's time in the womb or not. If we're to believe the real McCartney died on the 9th of November 1966, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins, then he wouldn't have even met the young Linda Eastman yet. So, Linda would actually have met and married Billy Shears and could hardly be considered the weeping widow of a person that she had never known. It's so insane. It's insane. It's insane before you know this, and then it just becomes plain ridiculous. As for his bare feet, McCartney himself later explained why he wasn't wearing shoes on that day. People start looking at it and they say, why hasn't he got shoes on? He's never done that before. Okay, so you've never seen me do it before, but in actual fact, it's just me with my shoes off. So what? Barefoot. Nice warm day. I didn't feel like wearing shoes. Turns out to be some old mafia sign of death or something. <laughs> it sometimes feels as if that wretched Billy Shears has an answer for everything. Here, there, everywhere. You might be thinking that not all these clues are entirely compelling. <laughs> Who would be thinking that, Danny? <laughs> Sheeple, Danny. A more cynical viewer might conclude that each and every one of them is clearly just absolute bollocks. But that didn't stop the Paul is dead thing from going supernova in the US over the course of several weeks, even if it didn't bother the UK or the rest of the world that much too. We're really not talking about something on the same sort of scale as the silly internet rumor that the real Avril Lavigne died in 2003 and has been played by a replacement clone ever since. Not true, by the way, fact fans. This was something else entirely. There was nothing else quite like it. The theory was dominating the radio stations and newspapers as top DJs flew out to London to conduct their own investigations. The story would be like, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, no, I believe that. I believe that. Wait, can you go to London for the week? Let's go! This is something else entirely. There was nothing. The story made it onto news reports from ABC and NBC, whilst other television networks were putting together their own live discussions and TV specials. McCartney's younger brother, Mike, found himself to be an unwitting participant in t such a TV segment. Mike McCartney, back then known as Mike McGear, also had musical bones fronting a comedy trio called The Scaffold through the 1960s and 70s, no matter how successful The Scaffold was. You've always got to be like, oh yeah, no, no, my brother, Paul. Yeah, no, he's one of the Beatles. You'd be like, ah. It's like, if he was a lawyer or something, then he'd be like, well, no, I'm a better lawyer than Paul. But you're doing the same thing as him. And he's fucking Paul McCartney, isn't he? It's gotta be weird. The Scaffold might not have been quite as successful as the Beatles, but they did score a few novelty top 10 hits more than once and even topped the charts with Lily the Pink in 1968, which for any other band would be incredible. But you're still like, hmm, bloody Paul. <laughs> During a tour of the US at the height of the Paul is Dead mania, Mike had been invited to appear on American TV under the pretense that The Scaffold would be given the opportunity to perform their latest single. Instead, poor old Mike forced to sit in the same TV studio as a group of conspiracy theorists and listen to them bang on for ages about how his older brother was dead. Visibly annoyed, Mike responded on the broadcast with, I don't really want to rip you to shreds because that would be stupid, but I find all of this very embarrassing. You have no factual backing up, nothing at all to base it on. It's a fantastically contrived piece of press material. It's terrifying how you get away with it. It's a hoax. 
It's a con. That is incredibly level-headed. Mad respect for old Mike there to just be like, no, this is insane. What are you talking about? Essentially, like, I'm not even going to engage with this. This is clearly nonsense. When am I going to sing? Mike seemed to lightened up towards the end of the segment when the host, still clearly unconvinced that Paul McCartney might still be alive, challenged Mike to remember the last time he saw his brother. Mike immediately came back with, it was his funeral, I think. Fucking legend. That's that Robin, uh, Robert Patterson shit right there his band still didn't get to perform though <laughs> but there were a few other things going on back in that day that didn't really help to quash the rumors for starters the beatles had completely given up touring in november 1966 coincidentally the very same month in which the original mccartney was killed dun 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 <laughs> it was perhaps quite surprising for the biggest band in the world to suddenly announce that they were no longer going to tour ever again the official reason was that the screaming fans was drowning the band's performances out to the point where it felt like being on tour eight days a week had become an utterly pointless exercise. And it was a decision that paved the way for an astonishing new creativity in the albums to follow, as the Beatles were no longer restricted to writing and recording songs that they could easily replicate in a live performance. But could there be another reason? Perhaps Billy Shears wouldn't have looked quite as convincing when wheeled out in the flesh for all to see, or perhaps he couldn't even have played an instrument, at least not to the same standard as the original McCartney. It was a bit of a problem that Paul McCartney appeared to have gone devilishly quiet at the height of the Paul is dead mania. I mean, it might have helped considerably if he just appeared on live television, held his thumbs aloft, and announced to the world that he was alive and well, but he was nowhere to be found. I don't blame him. If there was this conspiracy, he'd be like, I don't give a shit. You can believe what you want. I'm alive. Why do I care? He'd be like, I, <laughs> why do I care? Honestly, all publicity is good publicity. I'm not getting hurt by this at all. Sure, believe what you want. <laughs> Call me Billy. During this suspicious lack of public activity from the same man who had spent most of the last few years having a camera pointed at his face, the fans had instead resorted to comparing the most recent photographs of McCartney with earlier photographs. It was concluded by many that his jawline, ears, nose, and teeth looked so different in the intervening years that they couldn't possibly belong to the same person. Again, look at a picture of yourself from 10 years ago. Look at a picture of me from 10 years ago. It looks very different. It's certainly true that McCartney's appearance had changed considerably since the early years of the Beatles, as had the appearance of the other three members that noticeably came a lot hairier for a start you only have to compare the cover of the early red compilation album with the recreated cover shot for the later blue compilation album to see how much they'd all changed in the space of about four years although it's interesting to see that mccartney has probably changed the least in between these two shots of course people do tend to look a bit different over the course of the cruel passage of time and i'm not convinced mccartney's profile had radically changed during the 1960s one of his teeth does look quite a bit different but it was only because he required surgery after a moped crash in 1965 a real accident in which no he didn't die you can actually see his damaged teeth and scarred lip in the promotional video for paperback writer and rain which were recorded shortly after the accident yet even mccartney conceded that he could see why some people felt they were looking at photographs of two different people he later said coincidentally around that time i was playing down a lot of the old beetle image and getting a bit more to what i felt was me letting my beard grow and not being so hung up on keeping fresh and clean I looked different, more laid back, and so I had people coming up and saying, you're not him. And I was beginning to think, I am, you know, but I don't know what you mean. I don't look like him. Despite all the suspicion, McCartney still seemed reluctant to pop his head over the parapet at the time and confirm that he was still alive. So, 
Where was he hiding? Or what was he hiding? After the Beatles had given up touring, all four members had chosen to spend a lot less time in the spotlight after being hauled through the publicity mill during a pretty exhaustive four years. But it's true to say that a secret of sorts was indeed being whispered down the corridors of the Abbey Road recording studios. The most famous band in the world were very much on the brink of splitting up. They certainly had plenty of arguments in the past, and just about every member had briefly quit the band at some point, only to be lured back the next day. But this time, it felt different. Tensions have been rising higher than ever before in the recording studio, partly fueled by John Lennon's insistence that his partner Yoko Ono should sit in on all the sessions. Oh, John Lennon. Ah! If, before we got even, oh, for fuck's sake, John! Yoko! Yoko! You guys must have seen that famous clip of her. Of John, uh, of John Lennon and Chuck Berry performing together. And then Yoko Ono's just like, ah! And the sound engineer cuts her mic. <laughs> and Chuck Berry's face is like this. <laughs> he just goes wide-eyed when she starts to scream. Oh, oh God, Yoko Ono. You're the worst. I remember... I was shitting on Yoko Ono even harder than I'm shitting on Yoko Ono today. And someone was like, oh, well, Simon, she survived, like, did she survive the Holocaust? I don't know, something like that. And I'm like, well, so did fucking What's-His-Face, the guy who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. <laughs> Victor Frankl? What was that guy's name? It doesn't matter. But look, he wrote an amazing book. Yoko Ono makes terrible music. <laughs> Come on. This meant that every time Lennon had a musical disagreement with one of the others, Yoko would immediately leap to her partner's defense as if she were a legitimate member of the Beatles with an equal say in what was going on. McCartney had also recently lost a significant argument with the other three over who should be the band's business manager. McCartney felt that his own father-in-law, Lee Eastman, was the right man for the job, and felt aggrieved by the other three when they voted for Alan Klein. Well, look, they vote. And also, can't you see that they might be like, well, not your father-in-law. We should have, like, someone who's... It shouldn't be a... Oh, what's it called? It should be a meritocracy rather than a... Oh, God damn it! it's a super common word where you, like, give jobs to your mates. Cronyism. Kleptocracy? Is that it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know my big words. I'm really sorry. People are screaming in their heads now. It's not what I mean, Simon. Doesn't matter. All kinds of other shit was going to go down behind the scenes, but the final nail was hammered into the coffin on the 20th of September 1969, when John Lennon solemnly announced during a private meeting that he was quitting the Beatles. He said this before, but it now seemed he was deadly serious. Lennon felt that over the 10 years they'd been working together, the band had achieved everything they could possibly achieve as a collective, and it was time for them to go their separate ways and embark upon four exciting new solo careers. Well, three exciting new solo careers and a voiceover job for Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. Wait. I only found out very recently that Ringo Starr was the voice of Thomas the Tank Engine. Who was he in Friends? Was he just on Friends as a- What? Oh, I'm sorry. I get it. Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends is the name of the Thomas the Tank Engine show. That shouldn't have confused me. I was like, Ringo Starr was on Friends? Like with- Jennifer Aniston and crew? It would be a while until the big news was made public, but in the meantime, McCartney decided to get away from it all. He retreated to his remote Scottish farm near Campbelltown and bolted down the hatches with his new wife Linda, their two-month-old baby Mary, and six-year-old Heather from Linda's first marriage. However, whilst McCartney was lying low on the farm and enjoying a new life of blissful sheep petting far away from the prying eyes of the media, the band's press manager, Derek Taylor, was getting a bit edgy. He was becoming inundated with calls from DJs and TV broadcasters and fans in the US who all wanted to know if McCartney was dead or alive. Derek Taylor's patience was wearing thin, and he was keen for McCartney to provide an official statement confirming that his head was still very much attached to his neck. He called up McCartney on the private farm landline and explained that everyone's work was severely being disrupted by thousands of queries that they were receiving about his health. After hearing for the first time that he was supposed to be dead, McCartney's initial response to Derek was, Oh, 
I don't agree with that. <laughs> in fact, Derek made multiple calls to McCartney, practically begging him to do something. But the soon-to-be former Beatle was having none of it. He was busy on the farm and didn't have time for any of this nonsense. He's kind of right, because even if he's like, no, I'm still alive, they're going to be like, no, you're not, Billy! And they're still going to call and they're still going to hassle. It's not going to change anything, because people who believe in conspiracy theories don't like logic. As far as he was concerned, it was better to just let it be. The other Beatles didn't have too much to say about the Paul is dead theory either. George Harrison later stated, The rumors are too stupid to bother denying, which of course just served as ammunition for the conspiracy theorists who noted that Harrison refused to deny anything. Ah, oh god, that's not what he means. Meanwhile, John Lennon gave a brief interview to a guy who worked for the very same WNKR-FM radio station that had first discussed the backwards lyrics on air. He seemed largely bemused by the whole thing, saying, What did we do? Stuff him and shave him? How could we do it? I don't understand what it's all about. John Lennon would take a slightly less jovial view on the matter in the years to follow. I don't want to spoil, spoil the party. Paul McCartney eventually bowed to the pressure being piled on him by the press manager, Derek Taylor, who by now was tearing his hair out in frustration. In late October 1969, McCartney gave a few brief statements to the BBC and the press, which attempted to quash the rumors once and for all. Using the often misquoted line from writer Mark Twain, who once found himself reading his own obituary in the press, McCartney responded with, Rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. The actual quote from Mark Twain is the report of my death was an exaggeration, but let's not split hairs, it is close enough. McCartney later expanded on this a little bit by saying, If the conclusion you reach is that I'm dead, then you're wrong, because I am alive and living in Scotland. <laughs> Let me guess, the next line is, nobody cared, and all the conspiracy theorists just kept on conspiring. It didn't make a difference, and he was right all along. But these statements weren't cutting it with the conspiracy theorists. After all, most press statements are unlikely to have really been written by the person to which they're attributed. These words could have been just put together by Derek Taylor in a bid to cut down on the number of reporters and fans hounding him every day. What we really needed was to see photographic evidence of Paul and Linda down on the farm, along with maybe a major in-depth interview. Or at least that's the conclusion reached by Life magazine when they dispatch reporter Dorothy Bacon and photographer Terence Spencer to sneak onto the farm unannounced and do just that. This wasn't going to be easy, though. The only way of gaining access to the wildly roaming McCartney farm was through a neighboring farm belonging to a guy called Ian McDougall. But Farmer McDougall was very much on Team McCartney, and he had been asked to ward off any nosy reporters. Dorothy Bacon and Terence Spencer were to discover this for themselves when they arrived at McDougall's farm and were gruffly told to piss right off. Figuring that Farmer McDougall might also be likely to join this holy throng, they returned to his farm the following morning to find that nobody was around, allowing them to tiptoe to the McCartney farm. But now they had another problem to deal with. When Paul McCartney first caught sight of the duo arriving on his property, with Terence Spencer already snapping away with his camera, he was far from happy, as he had reasonably expect. In fact, he charged at Terence Spencer with flailing fists and followed this up by throwing a bucket of kitchen slop all over the photographer. <laughs> Good for you. Taking these subtle hints, Dorothy Bacon and Darren Spencer made a hasty exit from the farm, but then McCartney had an unexpected change of heart, albeit one inspired by not entirely selfless reasons. He reasoned that he realized that Terence Spencer now had photographs of the beetle attacking the photographer and throwing a bucket of kitchen slop all over him, which wasn't exactly the kind of image that McCartney was attempting to cultivate. I don't know, it makes you sound like seem like a bit of a legend. I was just chilling out on my farm, some paparazzi showed up and started taking pictures, and I threw a bucket of like kitchen crap all over him. Who's not gonna be like legend? <laughs> So he jumped into his Land Rover and caught up with the duo to strike a deal. McCartney would provide Life magazine with a major cover story, a proper interview, and a whole collection of more appealing new photographs of life down the farm, but only if Spencer surrendered his less appealing photographs and involving fists and kitchen slop. 
A deal was struck, and even though it may have been achieved by a very dubious means, Spencer and Bacon just had secured a major scoop for Life magazine. I bet Farmer McDougall was bloody livid. The front cover of the November the 9th issue of Life magazine featured a scruffy and unshaven Paul McCartney who looked like he'd just been dragged out of bed, posing on the farm with his wife Linda and children Heather and Mary. Alongside the headline, The Case of the Missing Beetle, Paul is still with us. The most fascinating thing about the accompanying story is that during the course of the interview, McCartney dropped a major bombshell which wasn't followed up on at all by Bacon, Spencer, or Life magazine. Oh, I think I've heard of this. Is this where he announces that the Beatles is not together anymore? At one point, McCartney reveals the Beatles thing is over, which served as shocking confirmation that the biggest band in the world was splitting up. Yet it was left to other publications to delve further into the breakup of the Beatles. Life magazine just completely ignored this major news development because they were far too busy asking Paul whether he was sure if he wasn't dead. <laughs> McCartney's response to this was that he felt the rumors had only started because he hadn't been in the press much recently and he was seeking a quieter life with his new family. He also quipped, do I look dead? I'm fit as a fiddle, but if I were dead, I would be the last to know. Following the publication of the article in Life magazine, the rumors of McCartney's death were finally laid to rest, in the mainstream media at least. But there were still plenty of people who were unwilling to let go of the idea. Surprise, surprise. Even today, online forums are still furiously debating the size and shape of Paul McCartney's ears. One group of researchers are keeping themselves busy by conducting stylometric analyses on just about every interview ever conducted by McCartney in a bid to determine whether his speech patterns change following the death of the original and the arrival of the replacement Billy Shears. So far, they've concluded that certain expressions and fillers used regularly in early McCartney interviews, such as, you know what I mean, seem to have dramatically fallen off the scale by the latter half of the 1960s. That's because people also learn more and maybe someone was like paul you say do you know what i mean all the time and he stopped saying it because it you know it's just filler it's like if someone's used to do all ums and errs and then they learn not to do it anymore then there's not going to be so many ums and errs are there maybe they just pause more but this could just be a sign of growing confidence and maturity in mccartney's language in it <laughs> Exactly! Despite these pockets of people who still cling to the idea, I'm pretty sure the most rational observers now of the firm opinion that Paul McCartney did not die in 1966, largely because there is not a scrap of compelling evidence to suggest that he did. But how on earth could such a blatantly ridiculous hoax have ever taken flight in the first place? And could the Beatles just have been trolling us along? Yeah, even if all of these things, which I don't think are evidence, are evidence, like the stupid, his eyes are closed, he's barefoot, blah, 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 it would all just be far more likely that it's just the Beatles having a laugh, like Robert Patterson and his clown story. Who was the rulerus? John Lennon appeared to get quite annoyed when he was still repeatedly getting asked about the pool is dead theory over the next year or two, famously dismissing the whole thing as made-up bullshit. There were probably a few good reasons why Lennon was feeling a bit grumpy in the immediate aftermath of the split of the Beatles. Lennon was the catalyst for the disbanding of the group, yet it was McCartney who had stolen his thunder by making the first announcement of the split to Life magazine. Not that Life magazine cared. Even though the magazine itself had completely ignored this major revelation at the time, this still led to a long-held belief that it was McCartney's decision to split up the Beatles. The four former members of the band were now hoping to shift media attention to their upcoming solo albums, but every time Lennon agreed to a press interview in which he hoped to promote his work, he just kept getting asked about why his ex-bandmate wasn't wearing any shoes on the Abbey Road cover. Lennon also wearily dismissed the idea of any coded messages within the lyrics as he grumbled, I don't know what Beatles records sound like backwards, I never play them backwards. That's not entirely accurate, as we already know the Beatles have been one of the first groups to experiment with backmasking a move, which was apparently inspired by the time Lennon came home drunk from a party and accidentally played a Beatles track backwards. But 
What about the idea of deliberately planting coded messages within lyrics played in the right direction? All four members of the band have consistently denied doing any such thing, but there is a set of connected lyrics scattered across two songs which are separated by a year, which even some of the more cynical listeners have concluded must surely be a direct reference to the Paul is Dead theory. And it's a story which begins with a walrus. Perhaps it's a mistake to even try and make any sense from the lyrics to the 1967 classic I Am the Walrus, a song notable for its insightful chorus, I am the Eggman, they are the Eggman, I am the Walrus, Goo Goog Job. Apparently written by Lennon during several LSD trips, the song was partially inspired by the Lewis Carroll poem The Walrus and the Carpenter, although Lennon later lamented that he hadn't realized the walrus was the villain of the piece. He later noted, I thought, oh shit, I picked the wrong guy. I should have said, I am the carpenter, but that wouldn't have been the same, would it? The purposefully nonsense lyrics about sitting on cornflakes and elementary penguins singing Hare Krishna were believed to be Lennon's attempt to utterly confound the kind of people who were trying to find deep meanings buried within Beatles' lyrics. He was just taking the piss. Yeah, it's amazing. All the people who believe this, the Beatles, who most of them are dead, are still trolling you today. It's the greatest troll of all time. But the walrus may be important, and one question still remains. Who was the walrus? Conspiracy theorists have observed that the walrus was considered to be a symbol of death in certain countries, so could it be that Paul McCartney was meant to be the walrus and the whole song was pointing to his recent death? Well, you wouldn't really think so. John Lennon wrote the song, so it's John Lennon who proudly sings I Am The Walrus. And it's even John Lennon dressed up as a walrus on the, on the cover of the Magical Mystery Tour soundtrack on which the song is listed. However, if you glance at the sleeve notes, it seems as if the rarely used full title for the track is I Am The Walrus, Oh No You're Not, said Nissel Nicola. So what did this little Nicola know about the walrus that nobody else did. Well, it was Lennon who appeared to give a direct answer for once a year later on the Beatles track Glass Onion. The song includes the intriguing verse, I told you about the walrus and me, man, you know that we're as close as can be man well here's another clue for you all the walrus was paul now some might say this is actually quite interesting not only does lennon confirm that the animal associated with death represented paul mccartney he's also serving up an explicit clue which can't be put down to fans misinterpreting vague lyrics he comes right out and says it here's another clue for you all the walrus was paul wait at this point was the paul is dead thing out of the bag like everyone was saying about blah 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 and it's all this he's making fun of you even some of the harder to convince fans have pondered over whether this could count as the only genuine explicit reference to the paul is dead theory being found in a beatles lyric and this has led to speculation that the beatles may have not only been playfully fanning the flames of the hoax but may have even been entirely responsible for it in the first place could all of this have just been a clever marketing ploy to generate press coverage and shift more beatles records um like i definitely think it could just be them trolling i don't think it's a clever marketing ploy they're the beatles they didn't need to shift more records they were shifting all the records they were the beatles there are several points to consider here which suggest that this was probably not the case to begin with the track glass onion was a strangely self-referential track which included nods to a whole raft of earlier beatles songs including strawberry fields forever the fool on the hill and fixing a hole in a similar vein to i'm a walrus the track is another attempt by lennon to bewilder the fans who were seeking answers to the meaning of life within beatles songs but this wasn't necessarily anything to do with the paul is dead hoax fans have been searching for any kind of hidden clues and messages long before then as lennon himself later revealed i threw the line in Walrus was Paul, just to confuse everybody a bit more. It could have been the Fox Terrier is Paul. I mean, it's just a bit of poetry. I was having a laugh because there'd been so much gobbledygook about Sergeant Pepper. Play it backwards and stand on your head and all that. 
It's also worth noting the Glass Onion was recorded and released before the Paul is Dead mania took hold in the United States. Okay, so that's important. But I think it's just them having a laugh. It's just them trolling. Oh, one more thing. To the best of my knowledge, the walrus is not considered to be a symbol of death in any country. While some fans insist the walrus is the Greek word for corpse, or the animal is the Viking symbol of death, or that it represents death in Scandinavian countries, it just seems to be complete poppycock on about the same level as the lyrics to a John Lennon song after he'd taken too many disco biscuits. I mean, what kind of country would associate death with a walrus anyway? You might go for a raven, or a black cat, or a spider, or something. Nobody is going for a walrus. John Lennon did make an disputable reference to the hoax a few years later in 1971 on his solo track how do you sleep which comes across as a pretty vitriolic attack against his former bandmate mccartney <laughs> oh shit is that beatles tea Relations between the two ex-Beatles certainly seem to have deteriorated a little since the split. Throughout this track, Lennon ponders over how McCartney sleeps at night, suggests that he only ever wrote one good song, compares the rest of his stuff to bland music, and predicts that his pretty face won't let him get much further now. Perhaps it was decent of McCartney to rise above it rather than respond with a track called At Least I Look Like I Take a Bath Now and Then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> McCartney, like, even now, he's an old-ass man. McCartney's quite good looking, right? Having said that, Lennon's track was supposed itself to be a retaliation to what he perceived to be earlier personal digs at himself and Yoko on McCartney's solo stuff. But here's. <laughs> yes, I like Paul McCartney. <laughs> But here's one of the most intriguing lyrics near the beginning of Lennon's How Do You Sleep track. Those freaks was right when they said you were dead. The one mistake you made was in your head. Putting Lennon's dodgy grammar aside for now, this is a clear reference to the Paul is Dead hoax, but it's interesting to note that Lennon condemns all the fans who subscribe to the theory as freaks. Yep, yep. Again, rather like Paul McCartney. Or should I say Billy? What was his name? Billy Shivers? Billy Shearers? Billy Shearing? I don't even remember. You know what? I don't even care. Admittedly, it sounds like he was in a foul mood when he was composing the song, but even so, it just doesn't seem likely that the bands themselves were involved in creating or fueling the hoax. Between the four of them, the Beatles just seemed to find the whole thing either amusing, baffling, inconsequential, or mildly irritating. And it's not like they ever needed to cook up a fiendish ploy to flog more records. They were the Beatles. Danny and I, same page. Yet you don't need a marketing stunt. You're the fucking Beatles. Whether the band planted hidden messages in of any other kind within their songs is up for debate. Plenty of other artists do it. I only recently discovered that the deeply enchanting 1982 hit Lands of Make-Believe by frothy UK punk band Bucks Fizz is actually a heavily veiled attack on the policies of the then UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her government. It's never sounded quite the same since. Wow. <laughs> is that because you're a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher, Daddy? Also, I've never heard of Land of Make Believe. Anyway, let's move on. Or Bucks Fizz. I mean, I've heard of Bucks Fizz the drink. Is that an American thing as well? It's where you mix champagne with, uh, with orange juice. It's quite delicious. But even if the Beatles were deliberately planting cryptic messages for listeners to solve, they would have been unlikely to admit it after the Charles Manson family murders of 1971. Nine murders were committed by the cult between 1969 and 1971, and their white supremacist leader, Charles Manson, claimed to have been influenced by lyrics on, wait for it, the White Album, which is cringe. Not the album, Charles Manson, and him being like, oh yeah, the Beatles, oh yeah. Manson felt that the Beatles were four angels that were mentioned in the Book of Revelation, and that the band were speaking directly to him in coded lyrics, which served as a warning of an impending race war. Well, I mean, it's Charles Manson. Who gives a shit? He was... he's... he's... 
he's loopy. It's easy to see why the Beatles may have been keen to distance themselves from the topic of potential hidden meanings in their lyrics at any point after this, but it's still pretty safe to bet that the actual members of the band had nothing whatsoever to do with the Paul is Dead hoax. So, then where exactly did the hoax originate, and could it have been something to do with the band's management possibly attempting to cover up a very real and very dodgy incident involving Paul McCartney's car? Okay, let's go. Is this some- Okay, now I'm curious. Did something actually happen? That's like somewhat scandalous? Well, let's find out, shall we? The long and winding road. Well over two years before the Detroit DJ Russ Gibb first started playing Beatles records backwards, live on air in response to a mysterious caller, we can see the real roots of this story take shape in February 1967. The Beatles Book Monthly was a relatively modest publication delivered exclusively to members of the official Beatles fan club, and the 43rd edition included a short and largely unremarkable news story which noted the following. Stories about the Beatles are always flying about Fleet Street. 7th of January was very icy, with dangerous conditions on the M1 motorway linking London with the Midlands. Towards the end of the day, a rumour swept London that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash off the M1. But of course, there was absolutely no truth to it at all, as the Beatles' press officer found out when he telephoned Paul's St. John's Wood home and was answered by Paul himself, who had been home all day with his black Mini Cooper safely locked up in the garage. That's all well and good, but it may not have been entirely true. In fact, it might have been a bit of a porky. According According to a 2012 book, The Man Who Killed Paul McCartney by award-winning rock writer Jim Yoakum, Paul McCartney's black Mini Cooper was certainly not locked up safely in his garage. It had been completely wrecked in a genuine accident on the M1 motorway on the 7th of January 1967, just as the supposed rumors had suggested. However, McCartney himself hadn't been behind the wheel. It had all apparently started with a small gathering at St. Paul's St. John's Wood home, a gathering which included no less than three members of the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and the late Brian Jones, along with trendy antiques dealer Robert Frazier and his loyal Moroccan personal assistant Mohammed Hataibi, who tended to cop for all the shitty jobs such as, say, moving any potential stashes of drugs around from party to party. Well, the reason he's copping for all the shitty jobs is because he's the dude's assistant. <laughs> He's not there as a guest. He's the dude's assistant. Of course he's doing that shit. At some point it was decided to move this particular party along to Mick Jagger's place in Hertfordshire before it then moved on again to Keith Richards' swanky mansion in Sussex. Even though there were now plenty of cars on McCartney's drive, most of the party animals decided it'd be a laugh if they all tried to squeeze together into Mick Jagger's Mini Cooper. <laughs> These guys are just having a fucking good time, aren't they? All except Mohammed Khatabi, of course. He gets asked if he wouldn't mind following them in McCartney's black Mini Cooper. Yeah, because he's the assistant. <laughs> he's not a rock star or an antiques dealer. He's the antiques dealer's assistant. Not just any old black Mini Cooper mind, he's getting handed the keys to a car which is instantly recognizable as Paul McCartney's, complete with oversized tires, interior armchairs, a wet bar, and most likely a player of fluffy vegetarian sausages hanging from the rearview mirror. Did Paul McCartney really have a bar in his little Mini Cooper? That is sick. Now, I'm not suggesting that Muhammad definitely was carrying a massive stash of drugs with him, as this has never been proven, and we only have respected author Jim Yoakum's words that any of this ever really happened. But if if there was such a massive stash of drugs floating around the place, it would clearly be problematic if it were found in a car containing three members of the Rolling Stones and a Beetle. Would it though? Like, if it is when you hear loads of drugs found in Rockstar's car, you're like, oh my god, what? A Rockstar? No! They would never!
probably better to just leave it all with the Moroccan personal assistant. That's not likely to attract too many headlines. If this was indeed the plan, then it went a bit pear-shaped when Mohamed Jatabi lost sight of Mick Jagger's Mini Cooper when he was supposed to be following, and then lost control of Paul McCartney's Mini Cooper when he ended up smashing into a pylon. The car was written off, and Mohamed spent time in hospital with severe injuries. Some sources have alleged that Mohamed heroically dragged himself from the wreckage and dumped the drugs before returning to the wreckage and waiting for the emergency services to arrive. And this still wasn't enough to appease McCartney, who just seemed quite annoyed that his beloved car had been wrecked. That's not cool. You should be like, are you alright, mate? In the immediate aftermath of the accident, a crowd of people stood and stared for a while, as whispers began to swirl that this distinctively pimped-out vehicle belonged to Paul McCartney, and coincidentally, Mohamed Jatabi even looked a little bit like him too. The Beatles press office may have felt concerned that someone who looked a bit like Paul McCartney had smashed up McCartney's car while possibly, or possibly not, carrying a massive stash of illegal drugs. So, they fed the fan club publication with fake news, which attempted to bury the whole story by suggesting that McCartney had been home all day, most likely sipping tea and munching on frosted buns while his car was locked up safely in the garage and most definitely not wrapped around a pylon. Then all went largely quiet until September the 17th, 1969, when 19-year-old student Tim Harper wrote a piece for the Times Delphic, a campus newspaper published by Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Under the headline, Is Paul McCartney Dead? His short article began, Lately on campus, there has been much conjecture on the present state of Beatle Paul McCartney. An amazing series of photos and lyrics on the group's album point to distinct possibility that McCartney may indeed be insane, freaked out, or even dead. <laughs> Tim Harper admitted to never even owning a Beatles record himself, so, so he clearly wasn't much of a fan. He later reckoned that he'd just largely been talking about one student in particular, who later claimed that he'd heard the rumor from some anonymous local musician. Harper was just writing a conjecture piece which was supposed to entertain his fellow students and nothing more. You've got to be careful though it's like you're not writing entertainment you're writing news but it was within this small campus newspaper that we first see in print the theories relating to the backwards lyrics on the revolution 9 track mccartney walking barefoot across abbey road pedestrian crossing and the supposed telephone number hiding in the reflection of the cover of magical mystery tour it was also this small article which inspired tom zarsky possibly a student at the same university to phone up detroit dj russ gibb and encourage him to play revolution 9 backwards on air and just two days later it was this radio broadcast which encouraged a guy called Fred Labour to write an article for the Michigan Daily Paper, which is where things got really wild. Fred Labour is better known these days, apparently, as the award-winning Grammy frontman for the comedy western group Riders in the Sky, in which he performs under the stage name of Too Slim. Never heard of any of this. But back in 1969, Too Slim was more interested in putting together words for the Michigan Daily, and, uh, and after enjoying the infamous radio broadcast with DJ Russ Gibb, he decided to write a satirical review of the recent Beatles album, Abbey Road, alongside the dramatic headline, Paul McCartney dead new evidence brought to light it's just people having a laugh and then some people take it much too seriously the key word here is satirical fred labor was just arsing around and this is kind of obvious when you read the whole article which concludes with the words the beatles are building a mighty church and when you emerge from it you'll be laughing for paul is the son of god wow and people didn't realize it was satire like it's like when people like share an onion article being like oh my god and it's like bro bro it's the onion Come on now. While borrowing some of the ideas from the earlier Drake University student newspaper, Fred Labour also makes up a lot of his own theories. The story of what may have happened with Mohammed Hatabi's car hadn't been revealed yet, so Labour was quite possibly inspired by the rumors of McCartney's car crash printed in the official fan club magazine when he came up with the idea of the Beatle getting killed in his Aston Martin. Wait, so he just straight up made that up? That's where it originated? <laughs> just a guy in a satirical review? This whole conspiracy theory basically started from The Onion. Labour respectfully observed that the top of his head was sheared off. He was deader 
than a doornail. <laughs> so respectful. It was also Labour's wacky imagination that first dreamed up the theories relating to the walrus being a symbol associated with death, the OPD armband, and most significantly of all, the idea that McCartney was replaced by a Scottish orphan called Billy Shears Campbell, who was, of course, entirely fictional. Oh my god, it's this one dude. 30 pages, Danny, and it's this one dude who just made up a satirical news piece, and that's where it came from, and people believe this because they're dumb. The addition of the Michigan Daily sparked major media attention and TV news coverage after the paper sold out several print runs. But it was always meant to be satire. Very shortly afterwards, Fred Labour repeatedly tried to make it clear that it just made everything up about the car crash and Billy Shears up, but not everybody was listening. In fact, Labour was invited to appear on a US TV special just about just a couple of weeks later, in which celebrity lawyer F. Lee Bailey investigated the evidence of the theory whilst cross-examining so-called experts and witnesses. Just before cameras started rolling, a confused Fred Labour tried to tell the lawyer that the whole thing was just meant to be a joke, but F. Lee Bailey responded with, Well, we have an hour of television to fill. You're going to have to go along with this. Um, or not. I just, <laughs> if I'm in that situation, it's like, well, it sounds like you made the mistake. It sounds like you got an hour of television to fill. I am just, uh, that's not why I'm here. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. This is gonna be funny. You're so screwed. <laughs> this seems to be the attitude adopted by US TV networks and newspapers over the next few weeks as students continue to rifle through their collections of Beatles records to try and find out what happens when you play Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds backwards whilst draping a dish towel over your head and snorting a bucket of popping candy. Of course, the whole theory was fundamentally preposterous on about 64 different levels. Here's the thing about the Beatles and why I'd go along with the opinion that they were easily the greatest band in the world, quite simply some distance above Kajagugu in second place. They were staggeringly prolific, releasing an incredible catalogue of world-changing material during the decade that they were together, a far cry from the bigger bands of the day who tend to take several years' vacation in between albums to rest their achy heads. Yes, this is the one thing that impresses me most of all the, about the Beatles. They wrote an incredible number of absolute banging hits in a ridiculously short amount of time. And then there's what I like to call the George Harrison factor. George Harrison is one of the greatest songwriters of all time, and is probably my favorite Beatle. But it's quite astonishing to think that one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived spent a decade fighting hard just to get one or two of his songs included on an album because he just happened to be in the same band as John Lennon and Paul McCartney. The Beatles were no ordinary band, and Paul McCartney was no ordinary musician. The idea that you could just replace McCartney with somebody who looked exactly like him, apart from the years, obviously, talked like him, sang like him, and shared exactly the same monumental musical and songwriting talents as the original is just clearly absurd. It's almost as ridiculous as saying that you could just replace Justin Bieber with a ham and pickle sandwich and nobody would ever notice. And how would so many people in the know realistically have been able to cover up the death of a beetle? Would the police, medics, family members, friends, business acquaintances, and hundreds of others all have quite happily agreed to participate in the scandal and remain tight-lipped for 50 years on the grounds that the truth might have affected the sales of the next Beatles album. No, exactly. Like, maybe for a week. 50 years? No fucking shot. Maybe MI5 threatened them all into silence, but I'm pretty sure that MI5 had more important things to deal with than deviously replacing a dead member of a pop band with the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike competition just in case the fans got upset. Even if the surviving members of the Beatles had somehow helped to pull off this frankly impossible deception, why would they then to decide, decide to leave such a long list of clues peppered throughout their subsequent albums? It's a very good question, Danny! Proponents of the theory have always suggested it's because they felt a bit guilty afterwards 
things but in that case you could surely reach a decision about whether to come clean or not i mean how would that conversation even pan out george harrison i'm wrapped up with guilt over our nefarious and unprincipled deception i suggest that we furnish our fans with the complete truth forthwith john lennon nah i got a better idea let's just make it so that if you play one of our songs backwards at 78 rpm you hear vague words which should be interpreted a million different ways Peace and love, bro. George Harrison. Uh, okay, let's do that if you prefer. Ringo Starr. Somebody put mustard on this bacon sandwich. What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> Ringo, shut the fuck up! There's also the small matter of the day that Paul McCartney was supposed to have been killed in a car crash after storming out of the Abbey Hill Road studio. 9th of November, 1966. Well, the Beatle was known to be out of the country enjoying a holiday in Kenya with his then-partner Jane Asher. And then there's the much bigger matter that many of the finer details first emerge from a satirical article written by Fred Labore, who freely admits to just making the whole thing up for a bit of a laugh. A satirical article which may have been inspired by a chain of events including a news story in which in the Beatles fan club magazine which potentially covered up a real incident involving McCartney's car a piece in a campus student newspaper written for entertainment value with zero credible sources and a radio broadcast in which the dj got a bit overexcited when he started playing records backwards a satirical article which was taken way too seriously at the time by segments of the u.s youth who had grown suspicious of pretty much everything during the ongoing controversial vietnam war alongside the conspiracy rumors emerging around the assassination of jfk and martin luther king jr this was a perfectly disenchanted and distrustful environment in which even the craziest of conspiracy theories could still gather steam as some Beatles fans became determined to twist and bend innocent imagery and lyrical flourishes into a shape that would fit their own helter-skelter narrative. And it was a theory which was allowed to escalate even further when McCartney effectively went incommunicado to quietly reflect on the genuine secret that the Beatles were no more golden slumber. As I watched an 80-year-old genius play a trumpet set at Glastonbury 2022, I got the impression that he's not too bothered anymore about being falsely reported as dead in the 1960s. He later admitted that it did bother him for a while, and he even began to feel a bit paranoid when every fan who ever greeted him was clearly checking out the size of his ears or the shape of his jawline. He now puts it all down to fans taking far too many drugs and searching for answers in the wrong places. But it's clear that he made his piped peace with the theory a very long time ago. During his 1993 world tour, he released an accompanying live album cheekily entitled Paul is Life, which featured a recreation of the original Abbey Road cover, now starring an older McCartney getting dragged across the very stained pedestrian crossing by his sheepdog. In this new version, McCartney is wearing shoes. He's changed his step by putting his left foot forward, and he's replaced the cigarette with the dog leash, which he's holding in his dominant left hand. The registration plate of the original Volkswagen Beetle is now updated to read 51 is, and which is a reference to McCartney's living status and age at the time in 1993, although I don't think he's counting the time in the womb. It's a relief that McCartney is still making the effort to keep reassuring us that he never died and that he's still very much alive today. But of course, the problem here is that the guy is most likely not immortal, and you may be watching this video after, sadly, the inevitable has taken place. That seems quite unlikely. He's 81 now. I mean, he could, he could live a few more years. Well, the odds he's going to die in the next couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> like simon you cursed him he's dead don't die paul you seem like a bit of a legend after reading all of this to be honest in which case i'd like to pay tribute to yesterday's amazing catalog of material that we were fortunate enough to enjoy from paul mccartney and billy shears turn us on dead men and that's the end of today's episode thank you so much for being here what a ridiculous conspiracy theory and i'll see you next time Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.